Brittany Hartley, welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. How are you? Pleasure to be here. It's been too yeah. long, friend. Yeah, yeah. We've known each other for a long time. You were like a the first time. listener. A long yeah, Mormon time. Discussion started eight, nine years ago. And uh, I was on like episode three or four and you reached out to me and said, I found your podcast and I'm liking it. And here we are eight or nine years later and uh, you and I are having a conversation about your book, yeah. Mormon Philosophy Simplified. Um, most of the listeners, I think, will have a feel for who you are because because of the book and because of uh, interviews in other places. But would you mind just giving like a brief bio about yourself and, and we'll go from there. Sure. So my name is Brittany Hartley. I live in Boise and by trade, I'm a history teacher. So I became kind of like you, Bill, just like more of a just really dug into Mormon history. And uh, it ended up in 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 this book that uh, has been published for a few months now. And um, just really enjoy being part of the conversation. Have you ever gone back and listened to those first few episodes of your Say of that Mormon again. discussion? Have, have you ever have gone, I back? gone back? Yeah. Oh, I, I do not like those first episodes. They... <laughs> Um, I'm, I was trying to find my legs underneath me. You know what I mean? I, I know. I went back because I was curious because we've been friends for so long. You were, I tell people, especially people who, you know, you get a lot of hate from time to time. And I always tell people, now Bill Real was the first person in my life to tell me that I wasn't broken. And he's a, he's a good one. Anyway, I went back because I was curious at where we started. And that first episode that we did, we hadn't quite figured out our voices yet. We knew we were onto something, but we weren't quite there. It's quite painful <laughs> from both of us. <laughs> so it's it's fun all these years later to be podcasting with you again. Cool, cool. And you and I have hung out a couple of times. I know you came into St. George for the Thomas McConkie uh, fireside and uh, had a chance to kind of be present for that. So um, I want to start off. Uh, page five of your book, and we'll just flip through a bunch of things here. And I am sure. hearing a little bit of an echo. I don't know if maybe you can turn your headset down just a little bit. Okay. Um, page five, let me pull up the book here. At the end of the preface, you say, I offer this book, imagining that you and I are sitting somewhere talking about the questions that don't get asked in Sunday school. I imagine we are lying underneath the stars asking questions that humans have asked underneath starry skies since the beginning of time without worrying about if we have the proper credentials to do so. Ultimately, this book contributes to the space, the gap between professional philosophers and the inquiring Mormon. I hope it helps you to take a second look at Mormonism's attempt to answer life's big questions no, where, no matter where you are in your faith journey. To, what I love, Britt, is the idea there, which is the room to ask questions. Um, on this side of life, I have laid with my friends late into the night uh, on, on trampolines, on living room floors, on backyards, looking up at the sky and talking to my friends and having conversations with them about all of those big questions in the world. And, and I'm just curious, I mean, you, you finished the preface here, setting kind of the bar for all of us humans need the ability to ask questions. And, and I'm just curious, maybe your thoughts on that space. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm going to kind of tailor this to, to, to your audience, Bill, in comparison to maybe how I would approach this with like a Jackson Washburn kind of 
sure. kind of approach. Um, what I've found for people who are on this side of Mormonism, which I would just define as you have some boundaries, big or small, with Mormonism for your own mental and spiritual health. Um, these questions don't go away, right? So you've been at this point excommunicated from the church, but this desire to sit with other humans and talk about what it means to be human and the reason for all of this and why things are the way that they are, why things are the way that they are, um, those questions don't go away when you leave church. Um, in fact, some people experience a kind of real existential crisis, even an existential depression, um, when you're having to face these big questions, maybe even for the first time in your life when you leave a when you leave a religion. And so I do think that for people who find themselves in the nuanced Mormon, post-Mormon, ex-Mormon space, it's still important. And I, th I still think that this book works for you because it lays out, here's the question, here's Mormonism's answer to this question or the best thinkers of Mormonism's answer to this question. What do you think now? And that journey is helpful for everyone across the spectrum because it's it's just what we do as humans. You just by making choices in your life, you're going to have a personal philosophy. You're going to have to answer these questions, and you deserve to sit and think about them. Yeah, and and on this side of things, and again, this is for the most part, it's a deeply nuanced, perhaps active member, but I think a lot of ex Mormons are, are sitting and listening to this conversation, and. I have to tell you, on again, on this side of things, being out of the church, feeling no pressure to conform in order to be an inside voice, right? Like now I can just say whatever the hell I want. And um, when I sit with my friends and I ask the big questions of, of this universe, I feel so free now to, to talk openly and to ask those things. And Mormonism sets this ideal. We're going to get into this as we get into your book. Um, there's a big divide between what Mormonism um, claims to promote and stand for and what actually happens when rubber meets the road. And I, and I think that's a big part of your book is trying to say like, look, let's think about these ideals and let's maybe start to get back to our roots and some of the things that we claim to espouse. But it feels so freeing here now to, to talk about like, is there a God and, and what is matter and do we really have free will and, um, to talk openly about evolution and the fact that we're on this flying piece of rock going millions of miles an hour through space. And yet here we are lucky enough to have uh, for the human species to have come about in chapter one on philosophy. You start off with a quote by Joseph F. Smith, sixth president of the LDS church. He says, I want to tell you that there is not a heathen philosopher that ever lived in all the world from the beginning that had a truth or enunciated a principle of God's truth that did not receive it from the fountainhead from God himself. This really is a beautiful thing in that um, if there's a God that he is inspiring all of his children all across the planet, outside of Mormonism, perhaps even more so than in, in helping um, artists and inventors and uh, people who are trying to make drastic, important social changes in the world, uh, essentially anybody who's drawing us to something good, that God's behind it. That really is a beautiful ideal, isn't it? 
Yeah, and I want to go back to this idea that you mentioned of the two churches, because I truly believe that there are two churches. Um, when I podcasted with Gina Colvin, she said that my book was a love letter to what Mormonism could have been. And people who are friends with me who know that I'm often critical and have a critical voice of things are very surprised at how uh, beautiful some of the topics that I bring up are. And there's this really big difference between what Mormon thought says that Mormonism is and what Dallin H. Oaks says Mormonism is. And those to me are two different churches. And so what I did try to do is I put all the best Mormon, what I would say the best Mormon thinkers are, and I am making some choices there, but the best Mormon thinkers across Mormon history, putting them in a room and asking them a basic philosophy 101 question. And what answer would they come up with or answers would they come up with? And people are really surprised at how profound some of those answers can be. And I know uh, people, especially in the Terrell Givens camp, are really fighting for that Mormonism uh, where we're gathering truth, like we're the gatherers. That's not something that we hear anymore. We're the exporters of truth right now. And so I really just wanted to bring back some of these um, ideas that I found so fascinating as I was you know, studying Mormon history. And... Um, there's just, yeah, there's a lot there that surprises people. I was listening the other day, uh, I'm a Sam Harris fan in uh, this side of Mormonism, <laughs> and uh, he was talking to his wife about panpsychism, which is kind of the belief uh, that everything is conscious. And they were talking about it, and I was, I was in the gym, I was listening to this podcast, and I was absolutely frozen because it sounded much more like a, a Mormon philosophy conference than a science class, because panpsychism is something that, you know, the Pratt brothers really believed in. They believed that everything was conscious and that God is calling all manner of life into higher and higher levels of being. So this idea that Mormonism has nothing to offer the conversation, especially in Christianity, I don't think that's true. You just gotta, you just gotta look a little bit, and I hope that my book made it easier for people to find, um, to find those things, and then also uh, help this LDS audience who's coming out of Mormonism to understand, uh, you know, philosophy a little bit better, so they can start asking these questions and feel confident to ask those questions of themselves. Yeah, and and I won't be antagonistic towards you, Britt. I love you. Um, but I want to be a little antagonistic, just honest about Mormonism. Like forever, Mormonism and its leaders say like, oh, you can't say it that way. Or, oh, you can't do it that way. Or you can't believe that way out loud. Um, and, and I just want to be honest. So which is that the 15 men at the top, no matter which generation you're looking at, and I grant that there have been more liberal voices at times, David O. McKay, Hubie Brown, uh, Dieter Uchtdorf. There have certainly been voices who have pushed the collective leadership towards being more open, vulnerable, honest, transparent. But it really is the collective 15 that prevent Mormonism from reaching its ideals. They're the ones who feel like they have some kind of power or authority to protect. They're the ones who feel like um, they have to put comments out there that that stray away. And I'll give one example. One example would be the temple. So I did a, an episode a couple of weeks ago. I listened to it ago. today. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, one moment the church says like, you can't talk about certain things in the temple. 
And then it comes along and says, okay, we're going to start being more open. We're going to start showing videos of garments and, and, and putting those things out there so that our membership feel safe to talk about those things. And then they make all these changes where they remove the sexism out. And what do they do? They put a video of the first presidency saying, oh, we can't talk about anything in the temple. Like these guys bounce around and they're so scared of the real conversations that could take place and the messiness in this religion that they don't get out of their own way to let this faith really take off and be beautiful. And, and I think there's a lot of ideals that we can get to. Um, let I, me just stop you sure, there. Please, let me just absolutely. There. Yeah. So I would say that what's interesting for me to watch is that split begins right as Joseph dies. So Joseph character wise, polygamy wise, I mean, uh, it's just a mess. But he was a religious genius in the sense that he um, saw some things in Christianity that didn't make sense, that were troubling. And he went in and he changed it. And some of those changes, Christianity didn't catch up to some of the ideas that he was talking about for another 100, 150 years until they started doing, you know, process theology and relational theology and things like this. So to me, what happens is when Joseph dies, and he's the visionary, and he he's he had the ideas, and now we have Brigham Young, who's the authority guy, and and from the very beginning, it's Brigham Young with the authority, and the Pratt brothers who are trying to really expound upon the ideas of Joseph Smith that were really interesting. They're trying to bring in science, they're trying to bring in philosophy, and they had a huge conflict. They did not get along, and so we see that from the very beginning of Mormonism that there's just this tension between authority and the scholars of the church to the point that that now, that's the big question now, is that is can Mormon thought be resurrected? Can it bring life back into the church where it can kind of transition into a modern church? Or will the authority stamp out kind of all of that history of Mormon thought in favor of follow the prophet and get in line and then what will happen 50 years from now is that Mormon thought will essentially die out and be kicked out and put to the periphery. And the all that will be left will be the most fundamentalist kind of strand of Mormonism. And so I, I, I meet some people who are optimistic that as soon as this group of men die, that the kids will be able to carry this work on. But I, I find myself being much more pessimistic. I, I we have this history of circling the wagons whenever we're threatened, and I just feel like we might not survive this. But it's 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 what's ahead of us in the ne next 50 years. Are we going to transition, or are we going to buckle down, you know, kick out, and then the authority will win this battle that started with Brigham Young and Orson Pratt? It's a battle. Yeah, it really no, is. Yeah. It, it's a battle. It's a battle. I, I feel... Now, again, I'll say these same phrases all the time, but for standing on the outside now watching as an outsider, um, it's going to take one of these guys getting into a leadership position and having some courage to stand up to the collective. It's going to take somebody with the courage of, say, David O. McKay and then some um, to rock this thing a little bit. And And I don't know what the system does. When these guys get called into the top 15, there is something that collectively pressures them to, to conform and to stay 
um, with within a certain uh, space of the group, right? Like they can't just go and do what they want to do and say yeah. what they want to say. I think there are and some legal things there. there. I mean, I know they sign some things, but I think there's also like when bureaucracy gets involved, someone said something, um, I'm not going to share who, but but like when they pass out the treats to the apostles, they'll do it from senior, you know, to junior. And when they leave, it's like from senior to junior. So it's very like, you know exactly where you are on this totem pole all the time. And it's just reiterated over and over and over. And that kind of deep, deep totem pole bureaucracy, it, it, it's tough to break out of. It's tough to break but, out yeah. of. Yeah. The hell with the Twinkies. I would blow the thing up and I would do it. <laughs> I, I know would, you would. Just, oh, we, <laughs> I, me and my friends and Radio Free Mormon and I sometimes sit behind the scenes and go, if we just had three weeks, three weeks, you can do whatever you want. Uh, <laughs> this thing would be I don't even think it would take three weeks. I think it would take, I think one general conference talk could blow it up. Like could blow, yeah. like just blow the door open and say, we got to yeah. face this. Like it's time to talk about this. Like one epic talk could even blow open that door. But these general yeah, conference I'm, talks are just, just painful. But anyway. They, they are. We, we set ourselves up to hear revelation, to sit at the feet of prophets. And what we get is bureaucracy and them preaching to each other. Um I, I, You've got two quotes on page eight and I want to juxtapose these against each other. I found these two really interesting. The, the first one, it's a misfortune that in Mormonism, our only real contact with the word philosophy is in the phrase, the philosophies of men mingled with scripture, which makes it obviously a bad thing. Such a phrase brings up an image of conniving men using fancy language in order to twist scripture into an evil plot, often accompanied, accompanied by uh, mustache stroking and muah, right? Um so there's that, and I think you're right. And and then I'm in my head juxtaposing that with Richard Rohr and Sam Harris and uh, at times Jordan Peterson, um, uh, Science Mike and the Liturgist podcast. Um, you know, when I think of these really humble, wise voices that are out in the world that are speaking on spiritual issues, um, I'm just, I'm deeply impressed uh, Krista Tippett in the On Being podcast to me is just amazing. Um, so there's that quote. And then there's the one just at the beginning of the next paragraph where you say, however, if there are philosophies of men, perhaps there are philosophies of God too. Ideas that can change the world and elevate the human soul. If the saints are supposed to find wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, Philosophy can be like a treasure chest of some of humanity's greatest gems of wisdom. Talk for a moment about those two quotes kind of being next to each other or near each other on that page. Yeah, so I'm really trying to just like entice this reader to like not be so scared of where we're going to go in philosophy. And so I try to use as many, you know, quotes as I can to help them, you know, be okay with this, especially from from early Mormonism, which is all about seeking truth from wherever it comes from kind of stuff. And so it's been so interesting, especially since the book's been published, to watch people's um, fear of a book that has Mormon on the cover and also philosophy on the cover. Like just those two words together um, are, are truly terrifying for people. I have dear friends, even some best friends, that uh, would not pick up my book because that is just too scary. That's too scary. And so I'm just really trying to challenge that idea um, 
of what you're doing when you say, whoa, that's a little bit scary to have to think about life. That's not faith. That is literally the opposite of faith, where you say, I'm going to keep my worldview this big, where it makes sense. And I just need to keep my worldview that big and my world that big so that I can make sense of the world. That's, that's not faith. That's literally shutting down. Um, and so I'm just really trying to challenge that at the beginning of the book so that people can have a little bit of permission, that there's permission from Joseph Smith, that there's permission from early Mormon uh, thought to say, it's, it's, it's your job. You can't take your moral compass and give it to someone else. It's tempting. It's what we humans tend to do. It's not just a problem of, of authority. It's also the problem of the human tendency to give up authority because because questions are hard and they can be scary. Um, and so I just, I'm really trying to challenge that uh, through Mormonism itself. Beautiful. Uh, page 15, you've got a quote from Elder Uchtdorf. Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf more recently tells us, quote, Latter-day Saints are not asked to blindly accept everything they hear. We are encouraged to think and discover truth for ourselves. That's a that's a gorgeous ideal. And it it is said from time to time in Mormonism. I can remember lots of times as I investigated the church and early on in my time in the church, encountering that kind of a concept, like go chase truth down wherever it is. Mormonism is truth, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Joseph Smith said that. And um, it is a gorgeous ideal. And yet... When you are on the inside of the church, when you're a Terrell Givens or a Jackson Washburn, you know, even if you're those voices, Richard Bushman or um, Patrick Mason, uh, Sam Brown, Patrick Mason, Fiona Givens, you know, and again, I've talked to these folks on and off the record. I, I Maybe it's not fair to like put them on the spot here, but they know, I know, we all know that they have to word things a certain way. They can't just go chase down truth and then share wisdom if it counters what the brethren are doing. And so while Dieter Uchtdorf is saying that beautiful thing in his talk, if I remember right, was called what is truth. Mm -hmm. um, while that's the ideal, the reality is that you have Dallin Oaks saying that you can't criticize leaders, even if the criticism is true, the church mm -hmm. offers no apologies. Uh, we've been told not to Google. We've been told to shun apostates. Um, if, if they're trying to share ideas and things that aren't within uh, our accepted practice, we even excommunicate people if they teach false doctrine. But the problem is our doctrine is always changing. So if they taught one thing in 1977, it would have been wrong. It would have been fine in 78. But what people were holding in 77, if you taught in 78, you'd be in trouble. Like we're mm -hmm. all over the place in terms of what Mormonism, the ground it wants to hold. And it wants to say you're free to go looking and to think and to, to learn and to talk. And the reality is there's really not a lot of safe space to, you gotta be really careful if you're on the inside yeah. and you want to start talking about big ideals. No, you're absolutely right. And it's funny when you, when you read some of the given stuff, I, I'll, I'll sometimes read something and, and I'll think, I don't know if the brethren know it's, it's, it's espoused in such academic language sometimes that I don't think that they realize it's the criticism that it is, but um, it, I just go back to this idea that, that it truly is a battle over what Mormonism is. And so you have both of those voices, you have get in line and you also have your own conscious, you know, and, and your own uh, search for truth and all of that. 
And so the question is, can Mormon thought survive the fact that author the authority, um, the fact that, you know, people like you have been excommunicated, um, can it, you know, it's not a, it's not a fair, it's not a fair fight, right? They have powers that, that those, um, that Mormon thought doesn't in the sense that they're able to say, this is not Mormonism and push it out. And so the internet gave Mormon thought this huge boost, right? Because now we can, we're having discussions like this. Um, there's people who are trying to bring this part of Mormonism alive. And so the question is, you know, who, who's going to win? And, and uh, it's such an unfair fight because the authority does um, have, has so much more power. And I don't know if it's something that Mormon thought will ever be able to overcome. Um, it's something that I talked about with Gina Colvin. Our whole podcast ended up being, you know, this dichotomy of Mormon thought and and higher and patriarchy, and um, you know, both of us kind of threw in our bets on on the authority winning out in the end but we're both maybe more pessimistic in that way. I know a lot of people who have a lot more optimism, especially with the youth of the church, that um, that this is just a phase that will outgrow and that's possible too. Yeah, yeah, I um, and, and the audience is gonna perceive, I'm being a little antagonistic on the front end, but I promise the audience we're gonna be uh, much more positive on the back end as we go through the ideals uh, there's there's a couple chapters at the end where you just kind of list bang, 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 different big topics and also specific Mormon topics um, that I think there's such beautiful space. If anything, man, I would hope Mormonism and its leaders specifically, because they really make up where we can go and where we can't. Um, I hope that at some point these 15 men will make the space for all of us to be a little more individualistic. And for each of us to kind of chase down ideas and that maybe we can, we can all be Terrell Givens and Fiona Givens plus a little uh, and being able to speak openly about some of this. And um, you kind of set this up on page 78. You say one of the myths in current Mormonism is that Mormon doctrine has always been cohesive or that revelation simply builds upon what is already solidified in scripture the reality for all religions, including our own, is that things that are considered doctrine are sometimes scrapped later or minimized or debated by leadership or developed in a messy human process. Mormon perceptions about God have shifted over time and still diverge into several main ideas that are echoed but not always congruent. The earliest beliefs about God from Joseph Smith were similar to the Protestant environment he was raised in and referred to God as one entity. Mormonism, I, I, I don't think most Mormons get this. They like to think there's this consistency. And the reality is that from 1820 and then 1830, the church is organized till present day. All of this is fluid and mm. is, is movable based on the 15 men at any given moment feeling the need to open up space or to shut down space. Mm -hmm. um, talk for a moment about this eternally changing Mormonism in spite of the idea that it's the same today, yesterday, and forever. Yeah, I, I do think that this idea is 
I think the most important idea for combating fundamentalism, not just in Mormonism, but in Christianity, because, um, you know, there's a reason that at BYU, there's a little bit of this fear to not go into biblical studies to like, oh, if you go down that path, you're going to lose your faith. Like David Bakavoy would be an example of this, just huge pressure to not go down biblical studies path. Um, and then he eventually, you know, has distanced himself from the faith. And, and this is why is because once you get into uh, the Bible or religion or just myth or anything, literally anything in religion, you realize that these are myths stolen from other myths and then translated and then someone else's idea. And it's just a huge mess. And so it's in, it's virtually impossible to hold on to some fundamentalist view that God wrote the Bible or that the Book of Mormon's perfect or any of these things um, once you actually dive into the mess. It's you can't you can't hold it any longer, and that's why I just think uh, there was a great podcast that John DeLynn did. It was like an eight-hour podcast where David Bakavoy goes in and talks about. Um, you know, the four different creation myths that are being melded together and where they come from in the Bible and the New Testament and the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants. And he just goes through scripture and just shows the mess. And um, I think, and I've thought about this a lot, that if I had one thing to say to the whole Mormon world that I think would have the biggest chance of making a change, I do think that it would be something like that. Let me show you I know what you think the Bible is. I know what you think the Book of Mormon is. Let me show you the mess and sit with that because that just blows open the door of, of fundamentalism. You just can't hold on to it anymore. And now you have to engage. And once you start engaging, then things can you know change and progress. But as long as you hold on to this idea that this is the way it is and it's always been this way, you just don't have anywhere to move. It's just, it's it's so... It's such a damaging belief. Yeah. In fact, um, comment here. Let's see. Uh, Matthew says, general conference, so boring and sourcing each other. The real interesting stuff is announced days before. It is interesting that these men don't want to say certain liberal things in front of the general membership, mm. that they don't mind putting something in an essay, that they don't mind having, you know, Stephen Harper or doing, uh, doing a, a, a youth fireside with Elder Cook and telling a certain segment of audience a more nuanced approach, but they really don't want the collective church all being on the same page. It is strange that General Conference is this beautiful space set aside where these men could, if they wrap their arms around the potential, come up to the pulpit and really share wisdom and really share like the most inspiring thoughts they've had over the last six months, the most interesting things they've read. And, and yet that doesn't seem to be how they use it. Um, your thoughts on kind of the multitude of audiences that these men speak to and the idea that they seem to like multiple narratives of Mormonism existing at the same time. Yeah. Um, general conferences, it's tough. It's tough to watch. I know even the Givens and even even the people who are kind of in the space fighting for a better Mormonism just can't even watch it. Um, 
I think it just goes back to the trust crisis, right? So people often talk about we have a trust crisis where the people don't trust the leadership. And I always saw that as it started the other way around, right? The trust crisis started because the leadership didn't trust the public to be able to handle the information that they had. And and obviously, you know, we can kind of prove that now. And I know you have podcasts that, that talk about that. And so it, it just really goes down to um, a trust crisis that we'll see if, I mean, it's a relationship, the relationship between the people and the leadership. And right now it's like in a, it's like you're in a bad marriage where, you know, you've cheated on each other and you literally don't trust each other. Okay. People don't trust them to tell them the truth. The leadership doesn't trust the people to be able to handle it. There's just no trust. And so um, it'll be interesting to see if that bridge and if that trust um, can be rebuilt, um, especially, you know, as they try to do things like the essays, I see this as uh, an attempt to maybe restore trust because it was lost. And I just hope it's a lesson that, like we learned a lesson. And, and I think it goes back to a lot of people talk about Monson and the fact that he had dementia for so long and, when all these decisions were going about, but I really look at Hinckley because people brought forth, hey, this internet's coming out and this is what's gonna happen and we think this is what it's gonna do and here's how to get ahead of it. And he kind of just said no. And it may be an age thing, like it's just really hard for him to understand what the internet was gonna do for the church, but just kind of said no, you know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna play that game. And uh, so I, I just really think it's a trust crisis on both sides. It's not just us not trusting them. It was them not trusting us. And so that trust, if the church is going to survive, that trust will have to be rebuilt. And, you know, uh, Joshua Snyder here says, uh, the brethren protect their authority claims as diligently as anything else. The only way that breaks down is if the rank and file rise against it in large enough numbers to bend its will. And that happens. I mean, there's been some acknowledgement this week um, as conversations have occurred in, in, on social media where we recognize like us, you know, the nuanced active member to all the way to the post Mormon, who's deeply critical that that segment of membership is having and, and post membership is having influence over the direction the church goes. These guys are no longer insulated from criticism. Mm. And, and I think for the first time in 200 years, the average member cannot help but be exposed to at least some of it. Yeah. And I do think that some of the turnaround, I mean, the turnaround of, I mean, the the policy was just such a mess, but, but the turnaround, and it wasn't a full turnaround, but at least backing down from, from having it be the hill that they were going to die on, there's been at least some backing off of, of that, um, was much faster than in our history because yeah. because so many bishops said i'm not bringing someone in for this this is not okay and because of that you know that response time was faster and so i i, I do see that there's a lot of people optimistic that the change is going to be a little bit more exponential exponential over the, the next 20 years just because the response time can be so much faster but it's still, it's still a very slow process and it's still, um, you know, just really, really old men who are kind of sometimes struggling to understand what's, what's on the horizon. 
and they are they are damned if they do and damned if they don't. So if if they cater to liberal uh, criticisms, then there's a segment of the membership that run off to groups like Denver Snuffer. Mm. And and if they cater to the rigidity or orthodoxy, then you have people running away to post Mormonism and and you know whether it's the the Mormon stories uh, following and all of us who came after John DeLynn who have been voices for for these this moving away from this rigidity. Um, so they really they really are stuck in kind of a lose lose. I understand that, but I would, if I was at the top, I would be looking at that research from Jana Reese and looking at why these young people are leaving the church and not staying and what they want in order to be able to stay. And that would be, I feel like that would still be incredibly important to me. It has um, to be because this church has will to die be. in a generation or two it will, if they don't. It will, it will die, especially, you know, if 30 years from now, we haven't moved at all, especially with transgender transgender stuff. The kids, they just, they won't stand for it. They just won't. I mean, I've, I've taught seminary in a very conservative area here in Boise. And um, even then, they're not okay with it. They're just, they, they truly are not. And I asked my seminary principal, this was so interesting to me. I asked him, how do you teach gay marriage? You know, how have you done this in the past? Cause I'm trying to figure out, you know, I got called to the principal's office many times when I was teaching seminary and trying to do it in a more nuanced way. But um, I asked him how he did it. And he said that the year before I was there, when he taught it, it was received so negatively and people came away so sad and just broken from how he presented it that this year he wasn't going to teach it at all. He wasn't even going to address it. And to me, that's just like this big red light of like, are you seeing, you, we can't say that the youth are the best and brightest spirits saved for the latter days, and then also say that they're wrong about this. We can't, we, you know, and it's so interesting. So they're just not going to stand for that. So if I'm the leadership, I've got to be looking at ways to, to keep the youth involved, or it truly will die. It truly will die. And they don't have a giant window. This isn't something they can work out over the mm. next 40 years. This is something right. they have to be quick on. And yeah. I think they've opened a can of worms. I mean, just this week at BYU, by changing the rhetoric around LGBT uh, dating, um, and, and you have the school officials essentially saying like, oh, um, it looks like now you can be gay and date on campus. And then the media reaches out to the church for clarification. The church says, we're going to have a meeting. I think it was today. Mm. And they were going to clarify. And then the church canceled the meeting and said that a clarification will be oncoming. So you know there's all this conversation mm. going on behind the scenes. Because once you get the students cheering like that, I mean, they were just cheering, right? Yeah. They're ecstatic. Once you open that Pandora's box where, where the youth are happy, happy for this change, you cannot back that up. If you do it, I mean, they know it would just be a huge PR nightmare. So how are they going to handle that? is going to be really interesting to watch in the next in the next year what this is going to look like when the rubber hits the road and two gay people are making out on the BYU campus you know i'm still yeah. not sure what's going to happen to them but it's going to be really interesting to watch because you had such an outcry of public support and it really it probably they probably feel a little backed into a corner that way but that's what they are good for yeah i'm smiling i've got my my popcorn made. I'm ready to watch this unfold. <laughs> um, when I look at this, I'm I'm seeing lots of things. One is you're right. They painted themselves into a corner. I don't think they thought out all of the rules of how these language changes, changes would play out. 
you now could have two gay men who get to go back to the same dorm and stay because it's a co-ed dorm, right? Mm -hmm. And a man and a woman can't do that. That would be breaking the honor code to go back and be mm -hmm. private and have some quiet time. Um, you now have, if, if, if these uh, students follow through on what they think they're allowed to do, you would now see gay people on campus dating. And if I was an Orthodox member, I'm confronted with that in my face mm. and I'm having to make sense of it. And I also have to deal with the fact that my church is telling me to leave them alone and not to judge them and to let them be. It doesn't take long before they're in your face before you start to have to wrestle with them. And Absolutely. if, like you said, if the church pulls back, um, it is a PR nightmare at this point. That I think BYU would protest to the point of just a huge media outrage. I think BYU would show up in droves if they tried to just undo that entirely, um, which is why the youth are so great, which is why um, they're just so needed. And I just, I wish they were more a part of part of the church, but yeah, it's, it's going to be really interesting to watch. It's fun to see the tail wag the dog. I, uh, I want to get into some philosophy. Let's do it. Okay. So right. let's start with uh, second coming. And mm. you you have this chapter, uh, page 86 chapter, and you're talking about Jesus Christ. Um, when a church is young, it can scare the hell out of its members that there's a second coming happening. Get ready, prepare. Uh, President Nelson, not too long ago, said that we were in the 11th and a half hour. And the trouble is, as time unfolds, uh, it becomes more and more difficult to convince membership and to use as a manipulative rhetoric to say that Jesus is coming back any day, get your food storage ready, have a year supply of fuel, have a year supply of food. Um, it, it feels like to become a growing church, we are going to have to let go of the... Um, the the magnitude of oh my gosh he could come any moment and you see older religions catholicism being a great example of they've they don't really scare people about that anymore um it seems like that's a place that mormonism is going to have to start to move and maybe is already your thoughts on philosophically yeah. how we how we position ourselves with the second coming going forward yeah, this is one where it's going to be tough. We have some th really strong theology standing in our way. Um, the Mormon prepper movement is just so horrifying to watch. And then I just went down that rabbit hole with the Daybell case and got to check out all the Mormon preppers that they were kind of involved in. And geez, that's just horrifying stuff. Um, yeah, there's some, there. there's this big, push in Christianity because the thing about Christianity is that the one thing that unites Christianity from Jesus to now, every generation, is the idea that Jesus is coming and the reality that they were wrong, right? And so that that really is such a defining characteristic of Christianity. I mean, they believe Jesus was coming very soon after he died, you know? Um, and then every, you know, every generation, it's just this belief he's coming and he's going to fix it. And so what it does to us is because Jesus is going to come and fix it, it just takes out all of, we, we just don't have to deal with things like global warming. We don't have to deal with, um, the threat of Islam. We don't have to deal with 
all these kind of stuff because Jesus is going to come and Jesus is going to fix it. And it's, it's really one of the most dangerous beliefs that I think is threatening the world is that Christians are so sure that Jesus is coming that we're willing to risk the one life that we know that we have and the one planet that we know that we have because we're so sure of it. And every generation was sure before and they died and he didn't come, but we're sure now. And it's just, it's its illogical. It's, I mean, y- you look at it from a rational point of view, it just falls apart and it's really terrifying. I think that there's a lot of people who try to nuance this and talk about how Jesus said things like, you know, the kingdom of heaven is now, um, is at hand, you know, it's, it's now it's before us and, and, uh, try to talk about maybe your life resurrecting or, um, you know, other ways that you can talk about and, and try to change the language so that it doesn't mean a literal flood and it doesn't mean a literal resurrection and it doesn't mean a literal second coming. The problem is we have such truth claims in Christianity that that Christianity doesn't have to deal with in the sense that Jesus is coming, we're having the sacrament meeting at Adam on Diamond, we're gonna give the keys back to Jesus, now Jesus rules and reigns, and the church is a big part of this. I mean, that's part of our huge truth claim, that's that we have a special role in ushering in the millennium. And so I don't think that there's a way, I don't think there's a way around that. I think that that is just a truth claim that makes Mormonism Mormonism. And if we were ever to truly back away from that, it would be something, it would just be kind of like a church of Christ kind of Mormonism where it's like, yeah, it's Mormon, but it's not, I mean, it's not hardcore Mormon. (laughs) So, you know, we have some truth claims in, in being special in bringing in the millennium that really limits our ability to nuance this belief that, that is actually really damaging, I think, to the world and, and to us as a, as a people. Yeah. Roger says, my great-great-grandfather, uh, my great-great-great polyandry grandfather was given a patriarchal blessing that he would live to see Jesus Christ return in the flesh. I just want to say, I've got, I've got a father-in-law who his patriarchal blessing says that he will twinkle and not die mm. normally, right? He'll just twinkle. Mm-hmm. And and I've got a brother-in-law who uh, his blessing says that he's going to build the temple in Missouri for the second coming. And you and I, we there's no chance in holy that either one of them that's going to happen to them. Mm-hmm. And and but so, it's, but it's every generation. It's every generation in Mormonism. Like it's time. It's go time. You're you're special. This religion is special. We're special. We're going to make this happen. And it's every generation. And there's only so long that we can sustain that. But I think for now, that's going to be one that's just too hard theologically for us to get around. We're just, if you're the covenant people, if you hold the keys that you're giving to Jesus to be able to do this, it's just, it's too, uh, it, there's too much theology. There's too many truth claims there to truly back off from. We can nuance it a little bit, but but not as much as maybe traditional Christianity could. Yeah. The, the trouble though for me is prior to the internet, you could bless people with patriarchal blessings for anything. 
they get old, they die. They're supposed to keep their blessing for the most part to themselves, right? We have this, this cultural thing that these are sacred things. We should not throw uh, our pearls before swine. And so people might share their blessing with their closest family, but they're not going out and announcing it anywhere. They might use a piece here or there for a sacrament talk across their life. But then they get to die and nobody is going to hold those promises accountable. And now here's the internet and here's, you know, you and I having a conversation. Um, there's 28 people watching live, but there's going to be a few thousand people that will watch it after we're listening to it. And they're going to face the fact that, oh, that's right. Like we're blessing people that they're going to build the temple for the second coming. And then they don't like the internet changes the game. And it allows mm -hmm. us to all say like, here's this data. We're going to put it on the internet and we all get access to it. And we can see where things hold up and where they don't. Um, I, I just think it's interesting. The church is going to have to, essentially has to watch every single step it makes. I think they're at some point going to make a statement to the patriarchs to use caution when prophesying. Because we've already seen that happen um, with like talks where, you know, people are even warned to just, um, you know, because of videos and because of recordings that unless you're truly in a one-on-one -on -one situation with someone that you trust not to prophesy essentially because it's problematic and so i think at some point there'll be something like that to the patriarchs of like you know before you prophesy maybe take a step back or <laughs> i don't know there's going to be something there where just a little bit of a warning before you do kind of right. that prophesying kind right of stuff. you have We've keys, already seen that happen. you have the right to inspiration you have keys and the right to inspiration but but don't say too much right and, yeah, and here we I are it's 2020 something. it's 2020 and we and we we put up on a on a pedestal now this idea that it's faith not to be healed that's even the more important faith mm -hmm. uh, it's because there's this recognition elder bednar is not a dummy he recognizes that priesthood power really isn't healing anybody exceptionally like yeah somebody gets better from the flu and somebody gets better from an earache but we're not healing terminal brain cancer we're not putting people's arms that have been severed back on um and so now faith not to be healed becomes the more important thing um on page 90 you get into the holy ghost and um, we have really cool uh, quotes. I'm trying to remember offhand here. Um, oh, my mind went blank. And this is one of the problems when you start to let go of Mormonism, you start to let go of all the data you stored away in your brain. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, he's a former apostle, and he said something along the lines of like, even, even the Gentiles are doing God's work. Mm. Um, that they, that even, you know, even the non-members are helping build the kingdom from where they're at. And we have this idea, there's this Holy ghost, there's this spirit. And here's where I want to, I want to twist this a little bit and start being positive about the potential that Mormonism has and what it could do. So we have this Holy ghost, which is a testifier of truth. And it's by the Holy ghost that we know the truth of things. And you and I know when, when you've read, say Richard Rohr, when you read Richard Rohr, you feel something cool when you come across wisdom and that wisdom is being taught from a humble position. And it does, it feels something like I literally, I, the only thing I can relate it to is what Mormonism told me the Holy Ghost was. And, and as I've gone out into the world and I, I listen to books on Audible all the time, I'm reading things constantly. Anytime I come across new research on things, 
and the data is backing it up. And I'm like, wow, the world is really so much, there's so much interesting things happening. I get this cool feeling inside. Mormonism has this potential to send its members out into the world and say, look, we're not the only place that has this. Truth is everywhere. And, and wouldn't it be beautiful if they could say, like, sometimes we're even wrong and the world gets to it quicker than we do. And go out and look, look for things. Go out and learn. Go be inquisitive. Go ask questions. Go read a lot. And then take all the truth you have. And then, as Joseph Smith said, bring it back because mm-hmm. it's Mormonism anyway. Talk for a moment about the potential of Mormonism in terms of, of a spirit that helps us to find and understand and envelop and, um, and implement truth. Yeah. I mean, following the Holy ghost is always, is always tricky just in the sense that, um, you know, no one is ever quite sure you can think that you're feeling the Holy ghost, but then, you know, you're feeling something else, but there is something going on where when humans feel that sense of interconnectivity to either each other or, um, some, a power kind of bigger than themselves, it's incredibly healthy for us. Um, and there's just so much potential in Mormonism to, because we have an open canon. And I actually, I actually wrote a paper on this that I presented at a philosophy conference about how in the Book of Mormon, it, it says a Bible, a Bible, we have got a Bible. Like we don't need any more. And it was talking about how they're fools for saying um, you have a Bible and not listening to this new knowledge coming out. And so I use this as um, just kind of a critique that if the Book of Mormon is, you know, I'm critiquing it through Mormonism, that if the Book of Mormon is written for our day and it's written for us, then it's a critique on us that we are right now the people that says a Bible, a Bible, we have got a Bible, except we say a Book of Mormon, a Book of Mormon, we've got a Book of Mormon. And we just shut off everything else. And it calls those people fools. You're not seeing the big picture. You're not being open-minded. You are not seeing God's work everywhere else. You're not seeing, as Joseph Smith says, holy men that you know not of all around the world. There are holy men, Joseph, that you don't even know about. Okay, they're out there. And, And Joseph Smith, he's reading the Apocrypha, which is something that's in our Doctrine and Covenants. And I've never met a member of the church that said, hey, I came across this and I thought about diving into the Apocrypha. And so we have Joseph Smith. We know now that he's reading Bible commentary. He's reading all kinds of books. He's talking to pastors. He's doing all these things. He's all about this idea of gathering, that, that we are not stewards of the truth. We're gatherers of the truth. And, and so there's so much potential, particularly in Joseph Smith, to have a freedom, especially in our canon, um, to do something that Christianity can't do. Christianity can't do that. They're, they're stuck on the Bible. That's the end. That's going to be it. But for Mormons, not only do we have more scripture, but we have the potential. You know, it says people will write in the islands of the sea, and that'll be scripture. We're going to gather scripture from all over. But when our missionaries go out, they don't learn the myths and scripture of the place that they're going to, even to make a connection. It's all, this is it. I'm going to give it to you which is the complete opposite of really what Joseph was trying to say what truth was. And so through Joseph, we just have this incredible path of being able to do something which would really appeal to the youth to be able to say it's everywhere. We just want, we just want to bring it in. What do you think? 
um, we just have lost it. That's just an idea of Mormonism that by now has, has been stamped out except for in academic circles. But also uh, something to keep an eye on with the Holy Ghost. I truly believe that Mormon feminists are going to, in the next 20 years, really petition for the Holy Ghost being Heavenly Mother. I think they're going to make that move. I know Fiona Givens is writing a book on that, that the Holy Ghost is Heavenly Mother. There's a lot of um, avenues there that you can work with, um, with the Godhead being a mother and father and son. And I wonder if, in order to preserve the patriarchy, if that will even be something that we move into 40, 50 years from now, where it only supports this idea of male, female, um, heteronormative relationships, if you can make the Holy Ghost heavenly mother. And I think that's something Mormon feminists are going to, to really be fighting for. So that'll be something to watch too when we're talking about the Holy Ghost. I love it because you bridge right into my next question, which is God the mother on page 94. And let me say it this way. It feels like in an age where Mormonism, where, where the leadership of Mormonism are having to confront the messiness of this religion that they lead, and they're having to confront the criticism from the bottom up of the trauma and abusive mechanisms that are within our system, it seems like it would be the easiest bone in the world to throw to start uh, talking about Heavenly Mother and to use that as a huge PR piece. And here's what I mean. It's, it's a unique doctrine in our version of Christianity. I know Catholicism has Mother Mary. I understand that there are female saints in Catholicism and in other early Christian denominations. But it seems like Mormonism has this really cool, unique angle that would allow um, the leadership to draw attention away from some of the negative and put it on this really positive thing. And yet they seem deeply resistant to doing so. It seems like it'd be the easiest place. If I were to step in, they said, hey, Bill, we want you to come in and, and help us move out of looking like jerks all the time. The first thing I would do is make Heavenly Mother show up everywhere uh, in, in you know, LDS uh, correlated uh, material on uh, the church's website, in general conference talks, because it draws attention to something beautiful that nobody's going to give me any negative uh, kickback for. And yet, for some reason, they don't want to go this direction, at least not fast. Your thoughts on why we're not talking about Heavenly Mother left and oh right? Oh my gosh, I have so many thoughts. Okay, we're going to have to sit here for a while. But um, the first thing is that I think that the reason that particularly, I would call this kind of the Nelson Oaks era that we're in right now, they're the ones that are really kind of pushing what doctrine is going out. Um, Oh, I just lost my train of thought. Oh, and, and they're both polygamists, right? So they both talk in a way that both their wives are going to um, welcome them in heaven. Dallin Oaks talks about celestial marriage compared to temple marriage in a way that makes me think that he truly believes that polygamy is the true order of heaven. I think that that can be proven that he believes that. And so I think they're too scared to bring in a divine feminine, a heavenly mother, because I think deep down, they're saying, 
this is what we're giving the public, but the highest order for those who really are worthy of receiving it is that polygamy is, is the true order of heaven. And there are people, especially more feminists, who were very concerned when, and this is just word of mouth what I've heard, that, that Nelson by himself changed a part of the, the temple where the women were put under the new and, and, and everlasting covenant of marriage. And you can try to tweak that section 132 so that it means monogamy, but it is just dripping. That phrase is dripping in polygamy. And so uh, until we decide if we're polygamists or not, or until we're honest about whether we're still polygamists or not, I think that Heavenly Mother is just kind of just a pawn in this battle that we can't really do anything with her until we claim a side. And I don't think that that's a side that they want to claim because I think if they came out and said polygamy is the true order of heaven, um, you know, the church public wouldn't be able to handle that and the church would die. And so uh, that it's just, it's so messed into Heavenly Mother. My other thought is that Heavenly Mother comes up, now we have this, you know, we have this history of the divine feminine that's beautiful, but the only time that the authorities use Heavenly Mother is when they're using her for another theological fight, right? So that she's used to support polygamy. She's used to support Adam-God theory, she's Eve. She's used um, right when evolution starts making its headway and people are freaking out about evolution. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we get this first presidency statement right in the middle of the Scopes trial about how we are made from a divine heavenly father and heavenly mother. And then she goes away. And so whenever we have some theological battle where they need her, she shows up. And then when she, you know, and then she goes away for another 30 years. And so my fear, and I truly have this fear, and I've really been pushing Mormon feminists to think about it, is that in all this fervor to bring in some divine feminine, which is really beautiful, and you know, stuff like exponent, those women are doing amazing work. My fear is that if you give this to the leadership and you say, we need more on Heavenly Mother, we want to see her more, you're not gonna like what they're gonna put out. There are some Mormon feminists that are asking the leadership, we want you to kind of write, tell us about Heavenly Mother, get ask for some revelation, you know? And I don't think that they realize that Dallin Oaks believes that our theology, this is a quote, our theology begins with our heavenly parents. And so if you do that, now you're giving the authority all they need to solidify heteronormative heterosexual relationships because if they um, do something with heavenly mother it's gonna be it's it's not gonna be what you want she's gonna be little more than a silent partner to heavenly father and she's gonna support the patriarchy she's not gonna have her own priesthood she's not gonna you know and so I'm really challenging Mormon feminists, before you go and ask the leadership for more Heavenly Mother, think about what Elder Oaks and Elder Nelson are gonna do with her. Because I think the beauty right now of Heavenly Mother is that she's underground and it's an invitation and women are taking that journey. And it's very beautiful in Mormonism to go on that, you know, Asherah divine feminine journey. Um, but if it ever gets solidified, I think it's going to be, um, I think it's gonna be really ugly and I think it's only gonna hurt 
uh, Mormon feminism more than help it. Mm, I'll stop there. Thoughts? No, no, I like it. I like that. I like this. I like this pushback because I'm I'm wanting it to just be everywhere. But you're right. Mm -mm, I don't want it. I don't want them to touch it at all. I want it to stay on exponent and have it stay underground because then it's a cool journey to go on. If if it becomes if she becomes part of the manual, it's going to be quiet, supportive, heavenly mother who's eternally pregnant, and possibly there's more than one of them because polygamy is still there. I don't want that heavenly mother. I'm not interested in that heavenly mother. That heavenly mother does nothing for women in the church. So I'd be really careful for Mormon feminists how far they want to push this um, and and how delicately they want to kind of do this this little dance that they have going with the leadership. I love it. Um, Chapter six, Savior and Atonement and Redemption. I've done a lot of exploration into the historical Jesus. I've read Riza Aslan, Zealot. I've read a bunch of Bart Ehrman. Um, I did a six part, I think it was six part, six or seven part episode on the historical Jesus myself, where I share kind of all the, the, the main data that's into that, that research, into that search for who the historical Jesus was. And I don't think that Christianity or Mormonism has to give up this idea that there was this person who came to the earth through supernatural means, who performed miracles left and right, who always did the right thing, who died on a cross because he knew he had to die for our sins, and then on the third day rose, having made an atonement for us and having suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane, bleeding from every pore. I don't think we have to give that up. But I do think that going forward, Mormonism is going to have to at least make space for other plates at the table. And what I mean by that is as, as we go through time, as science does its thing, as information becomes more readily available, we humans in religion are looking for more practical means to live out our faith. And having these magical stories is no longer sufficient for the younger generation. They need real hands-on help in living a vibrant and healthy life in the here and now. And so your thoughts on Christ and the atonement and making Jesus and his life and his teachings and whatever that thing we're going to call the atonement is, making it more practical to the younger generation today. Yeah, I think that of all the movements going on in Mormonism, this is one where we can have some hope. This is where we can do something to nuance more to nuance the atonement in ways that maybe traditional Christianity can't. So one of the problems is if you, Bill, do something super mean to me and my feelings are hurt and um, you say sorry, I can forgive you without any other sacrifice or suffering, right? I can forgive you as my friend, you're forgiven. And so, and everyone agrees that that's something good. And so when you say that God can't do that, God can't just forgive me for a mistake that I made. And if I knew better, I would have done better. Um, But that I can, now I'm doing something good that I can do between me and you that God can't. And that's a real, real problem in traditional Christianity. They're really struggling with why um, Christ had to die in order for a good God, a loving God to be okay with us, right? 
it's it's uh it's really hard and it's very fifth century and it's it's all about penal substitution and retrib retributive justice um which is just not where we're going as humans you know we we have the capacity to do a lot more compassion than that and so we have this opportunity in mormonism that because we don't believe in a traditional fall, that we weren't kicked out, it's a falling forward, it's a progression, that we don't even have to do that with the atonement. We don't have to believe that in Mormonism that Christ died um, in order to balance the scales of justice and mercy and all those reasons that we hear from Christianity that have kept that have crept in to Mormonism that really isn't a part of Mormon doctrine. It doesn't make sense for us to have an atonement like that because we don't have a fall like that. If if we have a falling forward, if this is progression, then it wouldn't, and, and we're with God in the garden just fine as incomplete beings. And we're in the pre-existence with God as incomplete, naive beings. Then why would it offend God if we came back into His presence? You know, it doesn't make sense for our theology. So we do have this capacity to make the tone, the atonement about relationships, and that's where I see a lot of hope for Mormonism that that we do relationships when you're in, right? Not not when you're out, but when you're in, the relationships are fantastic between each other and also with with Christ and God and it's all relational and that part of Mormonism is still really beautiful and people um, crave that and we need that as humans that relational theology and so we do have this opportunity in Mormonism to make the atonement about the relationship between you and Christ that Christ shares in your suffering as a real relationship Christ shares in your brokenness and then he has the power in that relationship to to share um, like you would between a husband and a wife that you share sorrow and you share joy, you share healing, you share pain, you share all of it in an open relationship. And so when you do that together as a congregation, that through Christ, we all are suffering together. We're all bearing one another's burdens. We're all crying together. Um, we're all comforting one another. We're all bearing one another's burdens, all of that that part of the atonement can be really beautiful. And I see actually a lot of talks and even some talks from the apostles where they're shifting, you know, this kind of sin narrative to a more kind of woundedness narrative or brokenness narrative or mourn with those that mourn kind of narrative. And so I think this is something that Mormonism, we have an opportunity to do something really beautiful. And I actually see movement in that direction that, that makes me think that this is a place where we can have some hope. We can do some stuff with atonement theology that can be really beautiful. Yeah, Brad Wilcox was one of my gateway drugs to my faith crisis. Um, <laughs> him and Robert Millett and some of the others, Stephen Robinson, as I read their works on grace, it it showed me that I was wrong about things in Mormonism, that there was diff a different way to see things than the way that my leadership had told me. Mm -hmm. And and once I realized like, oh, the leadership can be wrong and these other voices on the periphery can be deeply right and certainly more healthy, um, all of a sudden I was able to question other things. I want to I wanna back up one chapter and fast forward one chapter. So the chapter before is on um, essentially the philosophical problem of evil. And the chapter after is on free will. And those two things to me tie in. On this side of things, Satan is absurd. I just mm -hmm. to believe there's some guy man. who yeah, he's some some guy who 
took a third of the host of heaven, and now he just he just gets so excited about dragging all of us down. It, it just is ridiculous when you think about it logically. I did an episode a while back on Satan a couple of years ago where I tried to make the argument that it's just illogical. It's especially illogical, I just want to say this, it's especially illogical in Mormonism because in traditional Christianity, if we chose Sa- if we chose Satan and the fruit and that damned us, that makes sense. But if the fruit was good and a progression, technically you don't even need Satan in our narrative. Like if he went away, the whole story could go on without a blip. So it's something that we kind of took in from Christianity. I don't even think we need it. We certainly make a boogeyman out of them. Anyway, go ahead. No, no, good, good. Um, the philosophical problem of evil is this idea that there's so much bad out there. And, and we want to make an argument that Heavenly Father helps the girl in Leighton, Utah, find her keys. Meanwhile, he allows huge amounts of suffering um, whether it's disease, illness, kidnapping, sex trade business, uh, the the drug abuse that's out there, tons of different things that humans, some of us were making choices on our own, but a lot of it were not, and, and we'll get into free will here in a moment too, but there are a lot of things that just happen bad to us humans. My mom died of cancer uh, a few months ago. It was a, one of the most atrocious things I have had, ever had to watch in my life is my mom go from being relatively okay. And a week later, just starving to death and being dead. And um, as I watched that play out, God being all powerful and all knowing and helping one person find their keys or having the missionaries bless somebody with an earache and them getting better. And then the atrocious amounts of harm, trauma, and evil that is out there it's a hard thing to reckon and and essentially the philosophical problem of evil has always been kind of thrown out. So I'm going to put that on one spot. And then the other one is the idea of free will, which to this, to this point, I think, I think we have some ability to choose, but I think as science progresses, we're going to all have to come to grips that we have a lot less free will than we think we do. Um, Maybe talk for a moment about how Mormonism could or does navigate those two issues in terms of its potential, not not how leaders are addressing it in the here and now, but what's the potential of Mormonism on those two sides of uh, Huge potential. This is one of the areas where Joseph Smith saw something wrong with Christianity, and he tried to figure it out and, and do it another way. And Christianity is only catching up to some of the ideas that, you know, the ways that Joseph Smith was trying to deal with this problem of evil. So the problem is the bigger you make God, the bigger this problem gets. If you say that God saved my child from this flood, that means that he also killed five others, right? And you just, when you're sitting with suffering, just intense, intense, unnecessary, doesn't, you know, you're not overcoming anything, just unnecessary suffering, stuff like child sex trade, stuff like that. Um, The problem of evil is the one thing that that destroys faith more than anything. I know people who walk into the Holocaust Museum believing in God and walk out saying God doesn't exist, right? Because you can't reconcile a good, powerful God with the horrors that we see in this world. And so there's uh, there is some room here with with Mormonism in just the sense that God is limited, our God is limited. 
Um, his power's limited. Um, he didn't create the universe, right? He's an actor. He's a, he's a part of the universe. He didn't create the rules of the universe. There are several coexistent pieces of the, the universe that coexist with God. And so when God's not the creator of the world, um, it allows us to have some space where he doesn't have to be responsible for all the evil in the world. And so you have this beautiful idea, which I see sometimes in Eastern religions, which people are surprised to find in Mormonism, that if every part of life is conscious and self-determining and making choices on some level down to the very cell, right, down to the very atom, then all God can do is call all of these levels of being to higher and higher levels of being, right? But it can't stop evil from, God can't stop evil from happening. And so when you're talking about true Mormon theology, what Mormon thinkers, Joseph Smith, talk about um, the problem of evil, it's more that, that God is this presence in the universe that is calling life towards him, towards light, towards l higher levels of being, towards... Um, good and grace and compassion and all these things, but it has, but he has no power to come in and um, force your actions or change your actions or stop the cancer from spreading or any of those things. Because um, these, this idea, I'll bring in free will now, this idea that all creatures are self-determining and have free will, have free will, and that that essence is so sacred and so um, such an integral part to being alive and being conscious that God can't touch it. And so with Mormonism, you have a, I do believe that we have a morally superior God than Christianity because a God who can't is morally superior than a God who won't. And that's a huge distinction to make. And so there's this movement in Christianity. Um, in fact, there's a book out from my Christian friend, Tom Ord, who's a, who was a Nazarene here in Boise, and he wrote a book called God Can't, and that's how he solved the problem of evil in Christianity. He said, hey, there's no way, like God won't, or God does sometimes that we can't, it doesn't make sense anymore. Um, and so he made a way that, you know, God can't. And I said, this idea of God can't, um, Joseph Smith was saying this from from, from the very beginning that, that, that this doesn't make sense. And so um, that idea that we have free will, um, creatures also have free will and, and, um, God can only call and invite, um, but he can never coerce and he can never, um, stop you once you decide to do something. And that limits his power and ability in this world. And that's a better answer to me than just saying God, God's ways are not our ways. And we don't understand why that child had to die of cancer. That that's just not, it, it's not a good enough argument for me. Yeah. And the other thing it does is it explains why LDS leaders are allowed to essentially derail the church or slow down real progress or mm -hmm. um, believe they're on the right track when they're not. Um, and, mm -hmm. and it essentially says like, God's there waiting for them to ask and to think about and to wrestle with, but so long as their egos mm -hmm. and their need for power get in the way that they'll. Yeah. It paints a different God. Sometimes we talk about God in the church as like, he's head of, he's like the CEO, right? He's just the head and he's leading everything. And you look at Mormon theology 
and that's just not even close. You know, God is just, if you even go to the King Follett discourse, which is, I think, our most philosophical piece in Mormonism ever, you know, God is the one who awakened first and looked around and saw that he was more advanced than all the other conscious creatures in the universe. And he devised ways and organized ways to help everyone along um, if they choose to. And if they don't, then they don't. And for, for forever. And that's what God was at the end of Joseph's, li Joseph's life. That's what God was to him, a very limited God who was coexistent in a universe that has rules that exist outside of God himself. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. I, uh, I'm i going to put up the phone number. We'll see if we can get a caller or two to, to call in. But in the meantime, um, I, I want to at least ask chapter 10. There's chapter 8. I had a little question on knowledge and scripture, but I'm going to skip that at this point. I want to kind of leave a little time for some callers. And if you had anything, you were talking about maybe wanting to ask me something, one, one or two questions I'd love to answer. But I want to ask one last one, which is chapter 10 on ethics. And I'm, I'm just curious, maybe your thoughts. What, what is Mormonism's obligation? And again, it can do what it wants to do. But there's a question of what is the ethical responsibility? What is Mormonism's ethical obligation in terms of balancing loyalty and difference versus honesty and transparency? Your thoughts mm. on, on that? I would just go back to the two churches. I, I think that in every question you ask of Mormonism, you can put up kind of the fundamental, you know, leadership, obedience, hold to the rod, that side. And you can do the kind of more nuanced or Mormon thought side. And, and I truly believe those are two different churches. They have different leaders. They have different narratives. They have different stories and ways of explaining things. And you can, I've, I've actually just like listed out and shown that these are two almost distinct churches that are fighting for supremacy in Mormonism. And so for, for that question, I mean, that's the question of iron rods and liahonas. You know, are you a liahona where you follow the spirit even when your bishop tells you that you're wrong? Or are you an iron rod and you hold to kind of what the, the scripture says? And we have a tendency in Mormonism to lean one way or the other because, you know, it's an, it's an ethical dilemma. You're going to lean one way or the other. And... Um, so I don't think we have an answer on, uh, we don't have one answer on how Mormonism would answer that. We have two, we have iron rods and we have liahonas. And those I would say are at, at, at some point, maybe they were just an undercurrent of the same church. Now, kind of with the internet and everything, I would say that those are two separate churches. Those are two separate kind, kinds of members, members that fall in line and members that maybe have boundaries and struggle and kind of follow their own path, even though it might not be popular in their ward or whatever. Um, and so we have both those strands of, of thought fighting for supremacy in Mormonism. Are you led by the spirit or are you led by the authority and the word and the rules and, and that kind of thing? There's both. Yeah. And, and if we understand human development, and by the way, if anybody wants to call into the show, feel free, 435-277-0511. If you understand human development, I know you do, but for the audience, if they've studied follower stages of faith, if they've read um, Kathy Escobar's Faith Shift or Margaret Placenta, Placenta Johnston's um, Faith Beyond Belief, 
Um, there's uh, Janet Hagberg and Robert Gulich, uh, the, the critical journey. Um, if you understand development, all of us on the first half of life, as Richard Rohr refers to it, we we need rules. We need boundaries. Mm-hmm. We we like that our authorities have the answers. And if they don't, they soon will. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the second half of life, we realize like, oh, my authorities aren't any smarter, any more in touch. And in fact, there's actually wiser voices outside my tribe um, who point to truth and speak about truth. And and so I think the iron rotter really is the first half of life. And the Liahona is the second half of life. And I don't think they're two different churches. They're the same church at two different developmental stages. Hmm. Any thoughts from yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And that, that definitely fits, fits some of the stages. I would just say that um, the, the people who are Liahonas, they find in Mormonism somewhere they find permission. Maybe they're going through a faith shift and they start reading something, but, but the people, you know, people who are maybe like a Patrick Mason kind of type where if they say, you know, that's not what really what the leadership are saying, Patrick Mason knows of, of the kind of threads of, of Mormonism that, that allows for some independent thought. Right. And, and so I, I, I realize that there's a progression there that as a child, for example, you need a lot of um, stories about good guy and bad guy, and then you kind of grow out of that. But because Mormonism doesn't allow you or support you to grow out of that, what you have then is a schism. So I think it could it's possible for Mormonism to have a more fundamental way of talking about things, maybe a, a literal flood with children. And then in the adult class, talking about nuanced ways to discuss the flood and having that be in the manual. And if that were the case, I would support what you're saying, which is that there's a progression here of, of uh, what you're able to do at faith stages. And so we're able to, to do some discussion in our Sunday school group that we can't do with the kids. I would understand that. But because Mormonism stops you at the iron rod phase, and, and really puts a glass ceiling over you to take that next step, I would say that now it's a schism and it's two separate churches because it doesn't allow for that progression. It doesn't support that progression. When people go from to stage four in Mormonism, it's incredibly painful, more painful than it needs to be, more painful than it is in other churches. Um, it was incredibly painful for me. It was painful for you. Um, and it doesn't need to be that painful. And because of that pain and, and, and just the separation now between the two groups, I would say we're not talking about levels of faith. We're talking about uh, a Mormonism that says the ceiling is here. Don't go beyond it. And a Mormonism sa- that says, no, I've looked into Mormonism. There's much more here than what you're saying. And I'm going to follow the spirit. I would say that at Amen. this point, those are two different camps and not just a progression one to the other. We don't have the fluidity to do that in Mormonism right now. We might someday. It, it's interesting. I can't remember the name of the Native American tribe, but somewhere in North or South America, Central America, there is uh, there's a narrative about a Native American tribe where the elders of the tribe dress up in costume. And they scare and even um, even physically hit at times these younger children and, and scare these children into thinking they're monsters. 
And then when the uh, children of the tribe turn 12, they this happens one last time. And then when it's over, these elders take off their masks. And they show these kids that they're not monsters, but they're the elders of the tribe. And then the 12-year-old is then adopted into the practice and he participates himself. And there's deep unhealthiness to that. But there is something cool, which is this kind of Santa Claus thing, which is that, you know, our, our children are taught Santa Claus and it's beautiful and it's magical. And at some point they are not um, encouraged. They're not encouraged to stay blind to it. Right. We welcome our children learning the myth when it happens naturally. Mm -hmm. And when it naturally happens, we tell them, oh, that's a myth. And now we pull them behind the curtain and we say, now you're going to help us uh, be Santa Claus to all the other children who are younger than you or who aren't aware yet. And the temple, I think in Mormonism, could have been this gorgeous thing that you're pointing to, which is we, we teach the myth as literal. And then now you're 19 years old. You don't need to believe in Santa Claus anymore. Mm -hmm. You go to the temple and the temple practice is to help you wake up. And open your eyes to the messiness and complexity and, and the myth, the, the myths that we've been using for a million years. Mm -hmm. And and to help us all leave that building as uh, mature adults, or at least on the path of mat being coming mature adults, and to start thinking for ourselves and to go make good in the world, and to now be Santa Claus rather than believe in Santa Claus. Um, maybe your thoughts there. Yeah, I love this playing with myth, and it's something that you know, when you're first coming out of Mormonism, you kind of have, I think, a little bit of an allergy towards myth because like it was so incredibly painful for you to, to have a literal view in certain myths. And then as you kind of come out of maybe some of that more angst phase, you see that we're all dealing in myth all the time. You know, I my eight-year-old goes to school and he learns about Christopher Columbus and George Washington. These are the, the things that he's learning about the founding fathers. Are, they're myths, right? They're myths but they're helpful myths for the time that he's in now or good guys and bad guys and superheroes. And, and these are all stories that are helping him, you know, kind of figure out the difference between right and wrong and it's okay for right now. And then I hope, you know, he, he grows out of some of those things. And so I just love this idea that, um, you know, people who leave Mormonism and they just say, I don't believe in any myths anymore, but you know, you go out and you spend money, you know, money is a myth. This paper has no inherent value. It only works because we all believe in the myth. And just the power of myths and, and the fact that our brains do this, we sit around the fire and we tell stories for hundreds of thousands of years we've been doing this, right? So, you know, there is this tendency for us to, to create myths in order for us to be a community. And what I hope for Mormonism, and I think Thomas McConkie's book probably does this the best, where he talks about the stages and what it looks like in Mormonism, and really kind of fighting for, let's do some things with our adult curriculum that's a little bit more adult. So there is room for us to, you know, admit certain myths and to work with these things in more adult ways, but still be a community that, that tells certain stories because that's just a human thing to do. And I think that that's okay. Um, we just have to admit, you know, that, that Santa Claus isn't real, um, but we can still enjoy Christmas together and still call yeah. it a magical holiday. And it's still yeah. a magical yeah. holiday for me, even though yeah. I don't believe in a resurrected Jesus and I don't believe in Santa and I, 
don't believe in blah, blah, blah. Um, Christmas, is, Christmas with my family is still magical, you know? And so I, I, I hope that for Mormonism, I hope that my, that would be my greatest hope for Mormonism is that we could use these stories and, and, and grow as a community to be able to say, these are the stories that, that formed us as a people. And, uh, you know, we don't have to look at things the same way that we did when we were 12. We don't have to have the same testimony that we had at age eight, at age 55. That's not growth. That's not what we're supposed to do. That's not the point of this. Um, there's room for it. I'm, I'm just doubtful if we'll ever get there. I, I think you hit on something, which is on as one who now knows that Santa isn't historically a, you know, it isn't his, it isn't his, uh, a story of historicity and that it is a myth. There are parts of Christmas that are actually more magical once you understand and you now are being kind and compassionate in how you frame things to those who don't quite understand yet um, to the young kids. And so as a parent of four children, Christmas, the most magical part of Christmas was being a parent who knew the story, knew the reality, and and still promoted this thing to young children and helped them have a magical experience. Um, so I don't think being let into the circle of knowing it's a myth absolutely has to take away the magic, but it certainly takes a lot of maturity to create the system that wakes people up intentionally at some point or helps them to wake up on their own and then nourishes them once they're awake. Um, I want to just throw up a, a question here. So Jen, um, going back when we were talking about Satan and you said, you know, I said, Satan's absurd. You said, Satan's absurd. She said, how could the world have gone unaffected by having no Satan? And then she says this, she says, isn't that part of our doctrine and temple ceremony? Does he not cause opposition in all things? I don't understand how the plan could play out without Satan. Okay. Your thoughts? So, yeah. Um, you know, the temple ceremony, the, you know, it, it says right at the beginning, this is meant as this is meant as symbolism. You are Adam and Eve. Um, and so I do think that there is room to take the temple ceremony as symbolism. You're supposed to take it as symbolism. And so for Satan, because we don't have a doctrine um, of the fall and sin so much because we were able to be with God when we were incomplete. We, we don't, uh, have to do the sin nar narrative, right? We, um, are, we, we do wrong things because we are incomplete. Uh, we're like children, right? We're, we're naive. We're incomplete. We, um, it's not that we have an evil fallen nature, right? We don't have original sin. So for Christianity who has original sin, you have something sinful about you that Satan is going to play on and he owns you, right? Because you have original sin on you. This comes straight out of Christianity, um, you know, as early as fourth century. Satan owns you and Christ paid the debt so that you could be free of Satan. And if Christ hadn't paid that debt, Satan owns you because of original sin and you are fallen and you are sinful. Now for, for Mormons, we're not born sinful. We're born 
just just like children. This is just a part of our eternal progression. And we're here to learn and we're here to progress and we're here to grow. And so there's going to be opposition just because of the nature of the world. If you have two children who are playing, um, like I'm thinking of my two babies, one of my babies is going to hit the other baby. You don't need Satan tempting or doing anything. That's just the nature of children who don't know better, right? Who are still learning, who are still developmentally progressing. And so because we don't have original sin, because we don't have a traditional fall, we can actually talk about a falling forward. We're here to learn. And because we are all imperfect and incomplete, we are going to wrong each other and make mistakes. We're going to at one point get a little bit roughed up and wounded and broken where we're going to need Jesus to kind of bring us all together, help us to mourn with each other. And then we just keep progressing forever, right? And so we have some stories about literal Satan, but these are mainly stories that we've kind of adopted from traditional Christianity. Sometimes it just creeps in. Um, but he doesn't need to be there for us to be in a world where we learn and grow as children who are away from heavenly parents for the first time in our development. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to hurt each other. We don't need Satan shooting arrows of whatever or tempting us in our brains or, you know, being this boogeyman in order for the Mormon plan to play itself out. Cool. Cool. Glad to, glad to have you answer that. Um, any, any other thoughts in terms of uh, questions maybe you've got, you said you wanted to ask me a couple things. I'm happy to answer a question or two and, and then we'll wrap up and we'll get out of here and let you get back. Yeah. To your I was interested. This is just a curiosity. You were talking one day about astrology, like uh, your, your Zodiac signs. Yeah. And I got to say, Zodiac signs is something to, that just really irks me. And I, I'm only doing this because we have this type of relationship and Please. I respect the hell out Absolutely. of you. But the, the arguments that you gave for Zodiac were, were the kind that if, if a similar argument were made in Mormonism, I think you'd be able to rip it to shreds. Okay, and I'm I love surprised post-Mormonism that you ended up in a place you know, you've done the Sam Harris and, and mm -hmm. that the, that kind of thing. You've done some studies on the brain that you ended up in a place where the zodiac signs made sense to you. And it caused me like just this piece of cognitive dissonance where like I'm super annoyed by people's belief by these things. But I adore Bill Real and I respect him. And he's got something there. And then I'm like, it makes me doubt. Is there something there that I'm not seeing? And I would love to just what you thought about that. Okay. So here's, here's my relationship with astrology. Um, Gina Colvin, I hope I don't, I hope I'm not hurting her feelings or throwing her under the bus here, but Gina she Colvin. Believes in it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She can't. So Bill Real and Gina Colvin. Yes. Right. True. Okay. Right. So, so now Gina I'm doubting Colvin my came, annoyance. Yeah. Gina Colvin came to stay in Southern Utah for three or four days. Um, she stayed with my good friend, Chris Bloxham. And um, she's sitting at the dining room table. My wife came over. Uh, Chris and his wife Dawn are there, and uh, Gina and uh, and her husband Nathan. And the six of us are sitting down. And Gina's just talking about astrology. And I'm I'm dismissive. I'm like, just more bullshit. I don't need more bullshit in my life. 
Um, and she goes, well, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Let's try something. And so she has her book with her and she asked uh, all four of us, the, the Bloxums and the Reels, to give their uh, date of birth, time of birth, location of birth, right? And she, she pulls up then the natal charts for every one of us. So it's four of us. And we go around the table and she reads them about each of those four people. And as she reads them, it is absolutely, again, we can talk about it being a small sample size. It absolutely described the person to a T and in a way that we all looked at the other three of us and go, that's not me. That's not me. That absolutely is not me. It is, it is nailing that person's personality and their gifts and flaws and shadows. And it's, that wouldn't describe me. If they had read about me, I would have been like, doesn't even sound like me. But the person for who it was for, it was, it was nailed, like nailed. And I'm like, right, that's four people. Who the heck cares? So then I do it for each of my four children. To a T, it nails each one of them and it would not describe, it would not be a good fit for my other children for that particular child's natal chart. So I'm like, all right, that's fine. Then I've done it with other friends. We've had them do theirs and it's to a T. I have not yet, in a sample size of maybe 12 people, I have not yet had somebody's natal chart be um, inaccurate or better describe the other people that we did it with. So in my mind, I go, okay, look, I'm a skeptic by nature. I, I believe in deeply questioning everything at this point in my life and not accepting anything as the truth. Um, I'll tell you this. I know what it's not. I'm talking about all of it, all the big questions. I know what it's not, but I don't know what it is. And, and as I look at astrology, all I say, Britt, is that my sample size is small. I'm still skeptical. I'm not like, I'm not like opening up the reader's digest and reading my horoscope and it says Virgo, don't go outside today. Like that's just bullshit. But what I think, I think, and again, this is only me working out my, my hypothesis. Um, my hypothesis is that over the course of a million years of evolution, our species has survived because of our creativity and our um, uh, ability to think outside the box, our ability to be uh, fluid and take on different environments, our ability to come up with solutions to problems. And a big component of that is the diversity among us. Um, have you heard of the Enneagram, Britt? Yeah. So Enneagram, I'm 100% on board on. Okay. That so why is there only nine? I know, but yeah, but there's only nine personality types. Why isn't there a hundred? Why isn't there three? Like, yeah. why do these nine hold consistent? Um, we've got a kid there in the background. That's cool. Um, why do these nine personality types hold consistent? And they're the personality types that make up humanity something happened here in these million years that that diversified us humans into the essential personality type so that we could cooperate with each other enough, but yeah. also See, push that, back enough. That makes sense to me sociologically, why we would have certain tendencies. We even see, see this, I saw this amazing TED talk that talked about why in evolution, you know, the chance that you're going to have a gay son in particular increases mm. with each boy, right? And there's an yeah. evolutionary reason for that. Genetics, yeah. Right. And, and that and the sociology and the personality typing, 
you know, I don't think that there's a perfect model, but if you do the INFJ and you do the Enneagram, you can get, you can get a sense of what makes a person tick. I'm totally on board with that. How, how do you get to that is affected by where Mars is? How do you trace those dots? Yeah. So I have to come up somehow the intelligence of evolution, and I don't mean consciousness, just the, the natural intelligence that evolution has survival of the fittest and it promotes the traits that work and help us are promoted, the traits that inhibit us and slow us down, slowly drift out, right? And so somehow the intelligence of the universe has figured out what kind of diversity best suits us, at least at this given moment and probably for the last 100,000 years and, and maybe long, 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 long before that. And so we have to come up with there has to be some process in the universe that separates us into those nine personality types. There has to be some process in the universe that um, puts us into spaces that some of us are followers and some of us are leaders. There's something there to that. And if you can tell me what that process is, then great. Until somebody can better explain that process, my hunch and my hypothesis with only a super small sample size is that the forces at work in the universe that um, are just slightly different at different days and different times of the year is part of the factors that cause that diversity. That just um, seems like... That just seems like a, a jump that if I were to do something like that in religion, you would be much I'd more I'd bless skeptical. you out of the waters. Yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? If I said, yeah. hey, there's something in, I'm feeling the Holy Ghost, therefore, because we don't understand, you know, why humans feel this way when they're in church together and in community, because we don't have a better explanation, I'm going with... God, the father and the son and the Holy ghost or whatever. And you make that kind of leap into something at least a little bit mythical. I just have a pro I have a hard time making that jump anymore. And that may be just be like trauma from coming out of faith crisis. I just don't like doing leaps anymore. And I have become much more skeptical, but, but it's very interesting. I would love part of my skepticism is that, I'm a Leo technically, and I've never seen one description of Leo that I felt described me, but I'm more than willing to send you my info and we'll, we'll make a go of it and we'll update people to see if I'm a convert to this yeah, it, idea. In fact, in fact, I just put into the comments both Facebook and YouTube, and I think somewhere on your, in, in the studio where you're at, you can see comments. And if you look at the comments, I put it up. It's cafeastrology.com. And, and so I'm only suggesting that anybody here listening, get three or four of you together. Maybe it's just your household. Maybe it's a group of friends, but this is the important part. It's not just the day you were born. It's also the location. You got to be specific mm -hmm. about the location. It'll ask you and you have to be specific about the time of birth during the day. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you were born at 107 PM, you need to be absolutely put that moment in. Um, you can't put 1230 and, and nail it. It's going to be off a little bit. Okay. So I will, I will do it please. and I will update you to see. I want to hear, like because... it works. but it sounds to me like if you got 12 people together to read your, their patriarchal blessing, you know, I told my patriarch or whatever that I was going to be a, 
and I was trained to be a history teacher and he kind of talks about that. So if we were all to read our patriarchal blessings together, mine would sound most like me and others people's would sound like them. But I don't then make the logical leap that they're receiving uh, about priesthood and things like that. That's that's the leap where I, I don't take that leap anymore. And so I'm just, I was so curious to see you kind of take a little bit of a leap there. And I was like, Hmm, that's interesting. So I will do the experiment and I will update you on that. Yeah. And, and I'll just say real quick, I'm not, I'm not a proponent of astrology. I'm intrigued okay, and all right, I haven't all right. seen it. I've seen it work too. Again, I'm not, I'm not a dummy. I know that when I listen to a group of people, I know that there is some of uh, us humans, we, and we can't even help it, but we see some of ourselves in these things that we sometimes yes. seek connections that are just coincidence. Right. Right. So I'm aware of that as I'm hearing these things being talked about and right. it just feels closer than hmm. coincidence. Okay. Interesting. What Enneagram okay. are you out of, out of curiosity? Oh, you, can you guess? A five or an eight? I'm an eight. You're an I eight. will. You're a challenger. You, you, oh, if you pick on oh. something, I'll bust your ass. That's right. I started with five and then I was like, wait, no, he's an eight. <laughs> Yeah, I'm an eight. So I'm a, yeah. you know, the justice warrior. I'm, I'm actually, and if you know eights, if you know the Enneagram very well, um, eights are super empathetic and sensitive. Mm -hmm. um, but they, they also, um, but they'll fight down. Those, their, they'll fight for those people, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So there are times where I'm deeply emotional and crying and having a hard time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, me and my buddy Chris got into a conversation about a week and a half ago where. There were some things that were really hurting me about how I felt things were unfair to some degree. And I was super emotional. But if somebody were to pick on you, Britt, like I'll just be pissy and I'll go after them and mm -hmm. like I'll fight. Um, yeah, I'm a justice warrior. I'm an eight. Yeah, I feel that. How about you? Um, whenever I get tested, I've been professionally tested twice, like in a, a work environment so that you understand wow. people in your mm -hmm. in, at your job. And I, once I was a four or five and the other time I was a five, four. So some, somewhere in there, but, but a thinker and a feeler and spending all of my time in my own head kind of person. Mm. Questioner. Mm. The Enneagram is cool too. For oh, listeners. Cool. Dan yeah, Weatherspoon did one where things. with Jenna Spangler's someone and uh, where they talked about what your church experience will likely be like based on your Enneagram. And that was the most fascinating, one of the most fascinating episodes I've ever listened to. It was absolutely fascinating. Wow. That, that's super cool. I know the liturgist podcast did an episode on, on Enneagrams and I thought it was very, very um, broad in scope to like the person kind of just being initiated to understanding what the Enneagram is. So um, I'll try to post that here. Um, anything else? Any other thoughts yeah, you've got? I have one more question. Please. So something I've been thinking about a lot uh, is when you're on this side of Mormonism, and I actually have a post-Orthodox LDS group here in Boise that I uh, co-chair with another couple of about 40 members who are post-Orthodox, and we gather together once a month and talk about um, some kind of to spiritual topic that we decide beforehand, which has been really great. But I'm really interested in this idea that up until this point, religion has been the vehicle to provide um, rituals and community and art 
in a way that secularism and especially atheism has yet to offer an alternative. And so I'm really just trying to figure out how to separate the baby from the bathwater in the sense that what is, what, what is the future of religion? How do we, okay, let, let me put it this way. When I got my, I, I've, I've adopted three children, the oldest of the three children, I had uh, the sealing ceremony. And it was one of the most sacred experiences of my life. Even then I was nuanced enough that I didn't believe anything priesthood was going on. But the fact that it, it's incredibly tribal, all of my closest friends and family gathered around, around this child to basically say, it's actually this one right here, who's mm -hmm. out of bed, um, to say, you were born into another tribe, but you're ours now. And just take out the temple, take out the priesthood, take out the temple questions. Just that ritual was one of the most sacred experiences of my life. Now, my other two adopted children, uh, you know, are are younger than her, and I'm not in a position where where I feel like temple attendance is is something that I can do. Um, and I have no ritual similar to say these adopted children were not born in this tribe, but they're ours now. And as a tribe of my friends and family, we claim them as ours. I have no ritual to be able to do that. And things like that of, of, of art and of community and of someone sending me, you know, casseroles when you're sick and, um, just all the things that, that, that Mormonism just makes so easy because it has the infrastructure. How do we as a, as a society or, or even as a community of post-Mormons, how do we recreate that experience without the problems? And can you? I'm, I'm really interested in this question of, of how does secularism provide a better option? Because in some ways, um, you know, when you talk about mental health is the other thing that I think about. And the studies coming out on mental health say that more than smoking and what you eat, your, your intimate social relationships in old age are really the biggest factor in longevity. Are you taken care of? Do you have meaning? Do you have purpose? Do you have identity? Do you have meaningful relationships? And if you're an old person in Mormonism, those things are literally given to you on a platter. And if you're not, they're a little bit harder to come by. And so it may even be like, let's say you and I are right about Mormonism, but we may experience some mental or emotional or communal health negatives by leaving, you know, we're tribal, humans are tribal. By leaving the tribe, you, you have things that you don't get otherwise. And how, how can secularism or a secular approach recreate what religion gives us so easily? Thoughts? All right. So that that leads to a thousand places. Um, I know, but I've been thinking a lot about it and I want to so, ask So, yeah. Um, and I think it's a great question. So let me start with Mormonism. When you have a system that obligates us to take care of each other, that actually works out really well in certain instances. So I'll give an example and I'll get back to this too, but I want to start off this way. 
So I have a really good friend group here in Southern Utah. And they are people that if I say tomorrow, um, I, uh, I have this problem and I need to have you all come over and perform this duty of service for me. They'll all show up and we'll have fun and there'll be laughs and, and good times. And these people love to serve. And, and there's a deep, deep, genuine, honest friendship with these people. Um, at the same time, friends are also a myth, by the way. And what I mean by that is we associate with people who are like us in the mm. moment that our narrative about what they are doesn't match, things get more tense. And if I get into a car accident tomorrow and I get third degree burns across my body and I can't walk without the help of a wheelchair or other, you know, suddenly um, those friends who love me to death are going to be less involved in my life, even though there may be a need that I need them more. Does that make sense? Like mm -hmm. the people move on with their lives if everything else doesn't keep up. And, and so to some degree, being a Mormon and having the ward council be obligated to serve the needs of the ward, people are going to show up no matter what happens to your circumstance so long as you are on the inside of the tribe and you are perceived as one of us, right? You are us, not them. Mm -hmm. And so having a, uh, an obligatory system that helps is great. And, and we on the outside of Mormonism realize now the limitations of letting go of a system, even if it's false, because mm -hmm. of the good it does by being obligated to help us in our hard moments. Mm -hmm. Now, I'll set that aside for a moment and say, I feel like I've gotten way more benefit leaving than hanging on for that reason. And but so let me say on this. the outs let me sure. let me push back there. Sure. So you and I couldn't stay because staying the cognitive dissonance and the pain you were and I know you were to the point where going to church, you were having full on panic attacks where you were shaking, right? You were Yep. You were shaking um, yep. because it was so traumatic to hear the narratives that you know the people that were hurt that are hurting because of that, and that's that was too traumatic. But if you and I had never, if we were just the kind of person that we never had the dissonance, we never had the doubt, it was all unicorns and rainbows as far as Mormonism goes. There's a certain benefit to that um, in the sense of these mental health markers and emotional health markers that I don't, I don't know if we can compete against, which is very interesting to me. They, they might have something that we have to struggle much more to get. Mm, so, so I'm lucky in this regard. Um, as I juxtapose my time in the church and what my relationships were like versus my time out of the church now, what my relationships are like, um, it's not a perfect world. Um, if you've read Sapiens, and I'm sure you probably have, right? You've mm -hmm. all heard. I have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we understand the dynamic that we all stay connected in a small, small tribe based on intimacy. I know you so well, and we spend our time side by side as we forage through the day, as we as we hunt and gather. That I know you on an intimate level, and so we are friends on this. I know you so well. And at some point uh, between around 15 to 25 people, 
that no longer is the main component. It now starts to be gossip, right? Mm -hmm. And gossip is the binding tool. And so even in my friend group of 15, 20, whatever it is, gossip plays a role and I wish it didn't, but it does. It's part of how we humans operate in a group that is beyond a handful. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, a myth story is needed, right? Once we get to 150 people per se, mm -hmm. now myth is needed. So we all want to build a community. We want to build a community that has 100 great post-Mormons in it where we're reading cool stuff and we're having good conversations, but we can't. Mm -hmm. We can't get to 100 people. Mm -hmm. So anybody out there, if you want to build a community, um, you you have to just start by saying, it needs to be five people, eight people, 10 people, mm -hmm. 12 people, but it can't be 25 people mm. and it can't be 50 people. And it sure as hell can't be 150 people. So you have to right. settle for a small group. Now, once you do that, you have to find like-minded folks. Um, I can tell you about the people that I hang out with, um, both those that I hang out with on a really regular basis, weekly, bi-weekly at worst, to other friends that I hang out with monthly or every other month. These are the salt of the earth. These are not just good people. These are people who are willing to show you their shadows, who are willing to work through their shit in front of you, who are willing to be vulnerable and transparent. They will tell you the things about them that they are most afraid of will bring shame and guilt because this tight-knit group trust each other. To sh You can share your story, and even though it's different than mine, and even though you have felt shame and guilt over some of your experiences or your personality or body image or uh, your shadows or abuse and trauma you've had in the past, this group doesn't shame you or, or guilt you. And so these are like the best people who said like, you know, F it. I've done it the old way. I've done the first half of life. I don't want to do it that way anymore. I want to be, I want people to see as much of me as I possibly can show. And, and so these are people that as I sit in a, at a party, they will sit next to each other and hold hands. They will sit next to each other and put an arm around each other. Um, they will rub each other's shoulders. They will kneel down and rub each other's feet. Like this group is so close. Um, all they want is to be um, seen and they want to see. They want to be heard and they want to hear. And if you can, if you want to build a community, if this is to anybody out there, if you want to build a community and you want it to look like that, then you have to be that. So you have to start talking about your the deepest, darkest things, and you have to feel out. It's Brene Brown, right? Like we have to feel yeah. out mm -hmm. who we can trust with our story and who we can. I'm not saying you just throw your most embarrassing things out to everybody. but you. So you test the waters, but where it's reciprocated, where because when I started hanging out with these folks, I would share pieces and parts of myself. And these people then would... Uh, reciprocate that, and they would share more of them themselves with me than they had ever shared with shared with anybody else out in the world as they've gone through life. And as our group has constantly done this sharing and reciprocating, we have built in this trust that you know these people have your best interest at heart, that you are us no matter what your story is. You don't have to conform. You be you. And you can have bad moments, you can have good moments, you can be quiet, you can be loud, you can laugh, you can cry. Um, and the moment you, you and you can't do that in Mormonism, by the way, 
The tribe tells you you have to look the part and you have to belong, <clears throat> you have to conform, and you have to sacrifice some of your individuality to to be um, to be part of us. And when you leave that tribe and you go to to create a better world, it still comes with rules and boundaries. It still comes with hiding and shielding to some degree, although it's much less. But it is a group of people who are willing to just be open and transparent with each other. And it, I, I there's no ifs or buts. This is way better. What I am, what I am enjoying with my friends today is way better than any relationship I had in the church. And I loved those people. But now looking back with hindsight, I can see that all of us were hiding and shielding parts of ourselves and playing a game. So let me follow up here. And I'm really looking for advice because you're further along in your parenting journey than I am. My children are very young. So I'm 100% on board with what you've said. So about a year ago, I realized that I needed this in my life. And I got together with another couple. and we put it out on Facebook and got about, we have maybe 40 people in our Facebook group, but maybe 20 that regularly come and kind of in a girls group also, but, but where we're able to do that. So at least once a month we gather together and we cry and we laugh and it's the most, we've only been doing this for a year and it is within that year they've become, some of them are listening now, they've become my best friends the people that I've shared the most intimate things with far and beyond, far above and beyond what I'm able to do with the, the average Mormon, especially Mormon women who kind of put up the facade, the toxic perfectionism that we find a lot in Mormonism. Um, and it's, and it's fantastic. It's the greatest blessing in my life. Um, someone in our group, they had a family member die and, we as a group were able to send flowers. Do you need meals? Be able to be that support group because they don't go to church anymore. They don't have that. And so that's something we're building here in Boise. And if you're in Boise and, and this maybe pertains to you, you can reach out to me. But um, I knew that I needed something like that and we built it and it's been going on for about a year. And like you said, just so much deeper relationships than in the past. The part where I struggle is that if I took my children, so eight, three, two, one, that's their ages. I don't have, uh, if I were to take them to a group like that of, of our friends, um, we don't have myth stories of good guys fighting bad guys for them. I don't have a ritual that says you are a child and now you're an adult. You know, every community has rituals. Every community has, um, you know, mythical stories that help you say the this is a hero and a good guy and this is a bad guy. And that group provides all of what I need as an adult, but really doesn't do anything for my kids except maybe a play date or something like that. So how did you, as you're doing this with children, provide something for them at the level that they're at where they don't have the same needs as you that um, was giving them, you know, the baby without the bathwater when it came to Mormonism. How did you deal with that piece? So when I left Mormonism, my youngest was 12. My oldest was 19. And um, 
our friends have kids at various ages. They go to different schools. There's not, there's not the ability to go like, Oh, we're all friends. Let's bring our kids together and they'll all hang out and be good friends too. So, so the first part is just recognizing like, this is one of the, um, this is one of the weaknesses of leaving Mm. the church is that your friend group isn't necessarily going to have your kids and their kids be close friends too. Whereas at church, it kind of naturally imposes for that to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, cause they go through these classes week after week and they spend all this yeah, time. Yeah, I mean, together. I'm, I'm in a neighborhood where every single one of my member, my neighbors is, is Mormon. And so to remove them at this age of, of story and of music and of friendships with kids, their age, mm-hmm. you know, can I, can you fully replace that? Can secularism fully replace what they're going to miss? I guess. So I think you can replace the myth. Because we live in 2020, our kids can go to a movie theater and watch Marvel. They can. They mm-hmm. there's plenty of myths all around that tell us what good guys do and what bad guys do. Mm-hmm. And I think we're entering an age now where even even the complexity of that is starting to be understood. For instance, Thanos in the most recent uh, yeah. two Marvel movies, he really his his motive is good, but he's going about it in this deeply unhealthy way. And so, yeah. or even our Harry, children, you know, Harry Potter. I'm reading yeah. the fourth book with my son. It's fantastic, right? We can do some of those things. So I think myth in 2020, you can capture in other places. Yeah. Um, I don't think though the community and the tribalism is an easy thing to replace. And I don't have a good answer for you. My kids mm. have all kind of walked their own path and made their friends at school. And we don't have a an us that involves my kids being part of this this tribe. Now, that said, we've hung out before our kids with our friends' kids and get-togethers, and everybody gets along fine, and it lasts a few hours, and we go home. But it's sporadic, it's sparse, it's it's every now and then, and it's not. There's no perfect solution for that, so I don't have a good answer. Hmm. Um, I was hoping I'm, you'd have an answer. I don't, and, and I'm old enough. 41 years old. Again, my youngest <laughs> now is 14. My oldest is 21. They're gonna. They're far enough along age-wise that they're just gonna figure this out on their own on their yeah. own path. Yeah. Whereas you've got young kids and young so kids maybe, in a highly a highly Mormon area. Both sides of the family heavily Mormon. Yeah, and I'm finding myself wanting to weave into Mormonism a little bit more than maybe I would personally, because I I can't find some of the replacements for them in their development. And it's a weird kind of tightrope walk that I find myself walking sometimes. And the, you know, I just, I wish we got to the point in humanity where we had more kind of science-driven communities where we just know that we need this as humans and we can gather and these things are good and and have a secular way to kind of get the benefits without the, without the religion. But where I am now in Boise, um, you know, that, that's going to be incredibly difficult for me to replicate outside the church for my yeah. very young children. So it, it's, it's, it's a tough one. I was hoping you'd tell me what to do as a parent. <laughs> yeah. I I think that we're going to have to make space for some people who no longer believe staying longer than they prefer 
because it's beneficial to the collective family, right? Mm -hmm. And and I think we need to make space for groups like Oasis and others that are secular weekly meetings or monthly meeting places where the entire family can go. Um, I don't have a perfect fix. I, I only know that I personally, and I think if my wife were in here, she would say the same thing, that that the two of us are in a much healthier, like Mormonism doesn't value authenticity. Mm -hmm. Some Mormons are authentic, but Mormonism doesn't value authenticity to the point where we've actually had Mormon leaders give talks that that say negative things about people being authentic. Um, or even things like, you know, church culture comes first, or when Monson says, you know, you're a Mormon before you're a Navajo, that kind of stuff. Like, you know, we have all of that. Yeah. And, and, and so uh, I know that for me, and, and again, I think I can speak for my wife here that we are having our marriage is as good as it's ever been because we're having the most real conversations with each other. We are being completely honest about how we are abrasive to each other. Um, we are being completely honest about our shadows and how they're hurting the other person. And and when you start telling um, your partner like, oh, I'm not exactly the way you thought I was. I'm different in these ways. It hurts. But when you start throwing that on the table and speaking honestly and openly about it, there, there is a trust building up. Our trust is built. We are now having the healthiest conversations around conflict that we've ever had. We could not have done it inside Mormonism. Mm -hmm. So, so totally for agree. me and I... my wife, it's great. That's mm -hmm. right. For me and my wife, it's great. Um, I realized that leaving the church has been both good and bad to my kids. My kids would tell you, thank God we left. Um, my kids, my two daughters were very sensitive to the LGBT issue. My two sons are very intellectual around the messiness and the issues. Um, we were all headed out on our own path anyway. We were all going to leave eventually on our own. Uh, but we collectively did it at the same time as a family, unconnected to each other in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, but leaving what you would have done. Without a tribe. Yeah. I wonder what you would have done if, if they were younger and didn't understand why they, you know, they just went know. to church and hung out with their friends and it was, I don't know. Positive. Cause it hurt you know so I mean? bad. Yeah. Cause it hurt yeah. me so bad. I had to step away and I'm, and I'm glad I did. Yeah. Um, but, but like marriage time, wise, I, I completely understand. I told yeah. my, I, I tell people that you know, my, my marriage ceremony, you know, you don't know what you're promising until you go into it. There's a little bit of that, like you talked about with your, with your temple, um, podcast where, you know, it's a little bit spiritually manipulative and in, in the sense that I didn't know the language, the language, even at, even at the age that I got married, um, it, the fact that I'm promising myself to him, but he doesn't promise himself to me, like I'm giving myself to him and he receives me that polygamous language and not telling me that that's what I was promising me beforehand. Um, you know, it's, it's incredibly painful for me to think about, you know, our wedding ceremony. But when, you know, years ago when I, I told him that I don't believe this anymore and it was terrifying it was terrifying probably the scariest thing i've ever done in my life was telling my husband and he took some time and he came back and he said it's fine i choose you and that moment was when i really felt like our our marriage even really began because it wasn't 
it wasn't coerced. It wasn't because we were the same religion. It wasn't because of who we thought the other person were. You know, he chose he chose me when he had a choice not to. You know, that ends marriages, and that was really scary. Anyway, so uh, I, I you, totally feel all side that. Note. But I'm just having a hard time figuring out how to do that. Do this with the with young kids. It's 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 tough. Yeah. As a side note, uh, marriage on a tightrope. Uh, Alan and Katie Mount. Um, they've gotten some feedback that um, some people up in Salt Lake at the COB aren't very happy with their podcast. And, and yeah, well, it's simple because the moment that a non-believing spouse and a believing spouse are given resources and tools and encouragement to start building something bigger between each other at the expense of regardless of where they are on their belief spectrum, um, that is very threatening to the church. Um, the church senses mm. that those couples collectively tend to move in one direction. Mm. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see, because I think they, they're, they're harmless That's in surprising. terms of... surprising. Yeah, I, yeah, I found them more on the harmless scale of, hey, even the most orthodox member would maybe see this and say, hey, at least they're trying to keep the marriage together, you know? They're just trying yeah. to help keep keep husband and wife together. I'm surprised yeah. that they would find that threatening. That surprises um, me. The church likes to be the priority. And when people do what you guys did, which just said that I choose you, right? I choose you at over what? I choose you over not choosing you and choosing the church. Right. And so when, when couples are encouraged and given safe spaces to go like, you don't have to divorce, you can, you can be a mixed faith couple and here's resources and tools. Um, when those conversations start happening, happening safely in a home, um, those couples tend to, again, generally, collectively move one direction. Right. And I think that scares the hell out of the, the institution. I guess it would be more likely that the believing member would go out then you show the me doubter would go the doubter would go back in, you know. Yeah, show show me how many doubters understand the messiness and come back in. Do you can you can you name one? Yes. It's someone that I've had a little bit of a falling out with. I can't remember okay. his name. I don't need you he to actually runs, name him. He runs like, I know the, um, I know Don Bradley's that way. He runs the Uplift Facebook group. Okay. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. I'm just but my point being is that there's anyway, so few of them, right? There's just very only few. a yeah, very yeah. few. And they just and end up in between. kind of a new nuanced place that whatever. Yeah. But so yeah, 99% have you ever thought about doing um doing see I've thought about doing um a like a vow renewal ceremony this side of things? Would you ever do that with your wife, with your sweet wife mm. that I adore? Would you Yeah, it would it would have zilch to do with Mormonism. It would right. do with me announcing my recommitment to her. Right. It um, but, but it would be but, doing your own vows that that have meaning to you now. Yeah. I don't yeah, I find feel, that idea really beautiful. I don't feel an impetus to do that, but I could see us doing that. Yeah. Um it, really I'm just like I, Mormonism really occupies very little of my my energy anymore. I, I spend a couple hours a week doing these things, the podcast or broadcast. Um, but I'm not reading Mormon books anymore. I'm not, I'm not yeah. reading Mormon websites. I'm not diving into historical issues unless one of my friends comes up and says, you know, did you hear this? And it's something new to me. Maybe I'll go read it and then do a podcast mm -hmm. on it. But 
it's not it's not eating up my time like it used to be. Yeah, I I'm, I'm listening way. to Richard Rohr. I'm listening to Civilized to Death. I listen to um, uh, the Liturgist podcast. I listen to Krista Tippett on Being. Mm. Um, I like Joe Rogan's podcast. I'm just I like to learn. I want to know new things. Yeah. And Mormonism, if you if you put all the truth in the world um, in my front living room, Mormonism would be the the head of a pen. Mm-hmm. And it would be so small compared to the truth that's available to us. Yeah. And it just doesn't, and the truth that's in I'm Mormonism the, I'm isn't the same unique. Way. I was in the middle, anymore. I was in the middle of a book because for a while, for both of us, yeah, it, it was just up. this ravenous, almost decade long, I would say for both of us, decade yeah. long, just, I got to get to the end of this rabbit hole. And then one day I was in the middle of the book of a book. It was pretty deep academic book on Mormonism. And I just said, I'm not, I'm not interested. Like this is the bottom of the barrel that we're scraping. Like we got to find another rabbit hole to go down, you know? So I, I don't do, um, I promised myself that once, once the book published that I would move on to other projects. So I haven't, the other barrels are bigger, a lot of bigger barrels out there. You don't have to scrape the bottom. Um, anything else, anything else from you? What? uh, No, those were my two questions I wanted to ask you and I've kept you now for, Far too long, so that's probably a good place to end. Where, yeah, in the last ten uh, minutes, it looks like some of our live viewers have drifted <laughs> off. They've got, they've gone yeah. to bed. Um, I appreciate your time. You're you are a good friend of mine. You've been uh, you've been around since the beginning of my journey, and I you know I feel like I've been around kind of since the beginning of yours. Yeah. Um, we've been in different spaces, places, but have kind of followed each other, and mm-hmm. I just think you're you're smart and you. You say wise things, and so I hope people will take uh, take up your book. Where can people find the book? So it's uh, on Amazon. Yep, Mormon Philosophy Simplified. It's on Amazon. I have, I think, 10 five-star reviews, and uh, people from all across the spectrum so far have, if you're brave enough to pick up a book that has Mormon and philosophy on the cover, um, just a huge positive response that wherever you are on, on the spectrum, this helps you um, really frame, here are the questions, here's some um, framing to help you think about the question, and then what do you think? And there's just, I can't think of a person who wouldn't benefit from that journey. So I, I, I believe in it, and I, it's gotten a huge good response so far, and uh, just appreciate you, Bill, and appreciate your support. Oh, lo, these many years, and just excited for what chapter two has for us. Same, same. Uh, folks, Brittany Hartley, uh, just one of, the, one of the smartest folks I know. Uh, beautiful book. I, I loved reading it. I loved preparing for the interview. I loved thinking about the different ideas that you pull out. And I really do think Mormonism has the potential, if the top 15 can get out of the way, for something beautiful to start to happen. Uh, Brittany Hartley, thank you for your time and uh, just love you to death. Have an awesome evening. And if I can ever be of help to you, let me know. Yes, right back at you, Bill. Love you. Okay, have a great night, guys. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.